Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVA Nudge Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science or business management in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of the BVN Unit, and with me is my colleague, Jenik Mantashian. Hi, Jenik. <laughs> Hi, Eric. It's so great to be joining you again. I want to introduce our guest today. Today, we will be speaking with Amy Edmondson. Amy is an American scholar of leadership, teaming, and organizational learning. She is currently the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. Amy has been ranked in the biannual Thinkers 50 Global List of Top Management Thinkers since 2011 and selected in 2019 as the number one most influential thinker in human resources by HR Magazine. She is also the author of the books Teaming and The Fearless Organization. Amy, I am a big fan of your work. Your book, Teaming, has been an insightful source of inspiration for me, both as an author for my book, Nudge Management, and as a manager. I do believe that the concept of uh, psychological safety, which is more developed, I think, in the fearless organization, is really very powerful to reinforce individual well-being at work, engagement, and at the end of the day, performance. So we are very happy and honored to have the opportunity of an in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Amy. Thank you very much. I, I think the honor is mine. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Great. So thank you, Amy. Um, so it's so interesting. When I began doing research on your early career, I uncovered a surprising fact about you. So um, you were the chief engineer for the famous architect and inventor Buckminster Fuller. I've personally become a tiny investor in GeoShip, which models their bioceramic domes after his design. So this is a funny synchronicity for me. Can you share with us a little bit about your experience as an engineer and specifically working with Buckminster Fuller? As an engineer, I worked on just the kinds of structures you're now investing in. And my, my role was the sort of uh, pushing forward some of the geodesic mathematics to simplify the designs so that they would be easier to reproduce. And, and, and so that was, it was a very, very narrow, very small, but very exciting task. I was right out of university. And, and so uh, Buckminster Fuller was my first official boss, right? Which is uh, kind of a stunning experience because um, he was a gem, right? He was an absolutely wonderful human being. I probably just uh, surreptitiously got a lot of my ideas simply from working with Bucky. He was in his late 80s. I was in my early 20s. And he epitomized um, the, the, the sort of the learning-oriented leader. He was perpetually curious. You know, even at that late age, he just always wanted to learn more things. He was curious about everything from, you know, the new lightweight running shoes I had. He couldn't believe how wonderful the running shoes were then, you know, to the latest trigonometric calculations I had done. So Bucky spoiled me 
for any other job. You know, having had that job for about three years, there was very little way I could have easily slipped into some other company and been been happy there. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, and it's interesting, the link between the, you know, his style in terms of the learning organization to what we're going to be talking today about. Um, so I'm curious, like after your days as an engineer, you shifted gears and started working in transformational change for large companies. We'd love to hear more about how you made that, that leap and that transition. Well, first, um, Fuller died um, in July of 1983 very suddenly. Uh, it's hard, he was just a week short of 88, but still he was very healthy and very vital. So none of us saw it coming. Um, that meant that um, I hadn't thought a lot at that moment about what next, um, but it struck me very deeply that I had a debt to pay, you know, that this incredible experience I had had both intellectually and, you know, as I said, sort of um, in, a, in a work environment that was so rewarding, um, I, I felt I had a debt to pay um, in a sense to Bucky, but I thought many people didn't understand some of his technical work because his own writings were pretty dense. So I thought I will pay part of that debt by writing a book about his mathematical work, which is called a fuller explanation long ago and far away. But what but the process of writing that book taught me that I could, in fact, I was an engineer, so I didn't write before that. I did problem sets. And it, it taught me that I could learn to write. And in, in order to support myself um, at a minimal level, I did uh, substitute teaching in universities where they had somebody on sabbatical. Um, I taught math in high school. You know, I did. I So I had this funny life where I was writing and teaching and learning about the interplay between writing and teaching when it became somewhat clear to me that I really was an academic, but I didn't have a field and I didn't think I, my field was really engineering. So I, when I finished the book, I then had to find out what is it that people do? And you have to remember this is before the internet and it just wasn't so easy to sort of hop online and, 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 survey the, the territory and say, well, what kind of interesting careers might I have that speak to my particular skills? And so almost by accident, I in one of the talks I gave on geometry, I met an entrepreneur named Larry Wilson, who for some unknown reason instantly hired me. Um, and he was in the organizational development and consulting business. So that's how I um, I thought he was such a fascinating person about the human experience that I thought, okay, I can learn something here. And not only did I learn a great deal, in fact, I dedicated teaming to him because I really think everything, everything academically I've done since then was inspired by um, certainly the experience of working for Fuller, but also uh, the ideas of Larry Wilson. So I, got really hooked by the field of human development, organizational behavior, you know, leadership and learning. And I thought this is this is clearly where I feel most passionate and most able perhaps to contribute, certainly as compared to to um, the engineering I was doing before. Yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful story. And I love the title of the book that you mentioned. So many people know you as the leading expert in psychological safety, uh, which we'll talk about in more detail shortly. 
But how did your early career in transformational change put you on this specific trajectory, even if it wasn't evident yet where you were heading? You know, we didn't use that term psychological safety, but in the work that um, I was helping with, where we were doing culture change work um, with like cl- corporate global kinds of companies, um, part of the essence of what we tried to do was create an environment where people could bring their full selves to work. I mean, it was a it was about engaging people in in more authentic conversations and connecting more deeply with the purpose of the organization and the meaningful value proposition for customers and um, being better able to work in teams in a honest, authentic, learning-oriented way. So that was the kind of the nature of the work we were trying to do. And on the one hand, I loved I loved it and I loved learning from it. But on the other hand, I kept having this sneaking suspicion that I lacked, and it's true, all formal training in the field. I hadn't studied psychology. I hadn't studied business. So there was a, a part of me that was thinking, if this is as interesting as I think it is, I probably need to go back to graduate school. And, and so that's, you know, that, that's what I, I did. And when I got to graduate school, I had to sort of stop and engage in a very different way with the kinds of scholarly articles that I had never read before. And frankly, at, at first, I, I considered dropping out of the program because I couldn't believe people could write so densely and unforgivably inaccessibly and get paid for it. I mean, it seemed almost, you know, almost crazy uh, to me that this was an actual job. So I, it didn't make any sense to me. You know, I mean, it took me a long time to learn how to speak academic, um, but, I, but I did for a while think, what's the point of this? But I, I'm glad I persevered because I, uh, you know, I, I could become a good, as I always have been, a good bridge builder between the world of academia and the world of practice. And, and that's what I did for, for Fuller's work. That's what I did um, again, I think now and then in the academic sphere. So I, I had to go back to school. I said it was rough going at first, but after a while I found my stride and realized in, in almost to my surprise that this was a place where I could find and use my voice. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, Amy, to start, for those who are not familiar with psychological safety, it would be, I think, helpful if you could define it for our listeners. I define psychological safety as the, the belief that the, the work context is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. Interpersonal risk means I can ask a question, I can admit a mistake, I can offer a half-baked idea, but that that I lower, I feel that you can lower the threshold for speaking up. So that's psychological safety. It's not being nice, you know. It's not um, risk-free. In fact, it's the opposite. Right? It, it's it's about the willingness to take risks. Maybe the simplest way to summarize it is that it's a sense of permission for candor. Mm-hmm. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, I understand you stumbled upon this concept inadvertently. 
can you share with our listeners that story? I believe you were doing field research in the healthcare sector. I was. I was um, lucky enough. As I said, I was interested in organizational learning, right? How, how do you make a learning organization? And to me, it had always been an important part of that, that, that organizations could learn from mistakes, right? Because we all make mistakes as human beings and organizations. So I, I always thought learning from mistakes was a pretty important thing. Now, uh, as a first year graduate student, I was asked just by happenstance to participate in a study of medical errors in two leading hospitals. And so I thought, well, great, you know, mistakes, the whole, that's a very important part of learning. Um, the reason they asked me is that my, my PhD advisor um, was an expert on teams. And, you know, along the way, I did begin to think that the learning organization is no more, no less than a whole bunch of teams learning, right? because organization is a very abstract concept and individual learning is not enough. It's, it, you know, where the, where the important learning happens in teams. So I thought, okay, I can do this. And they wanted me, the, the other, the medical researchers who were leading this study, they wanted me to do one simple thing, which was to, to assess using a validated survey, the team properties of these different patient care teams. And then they would do the hard work of tracking error data and then we would put our two data sets together and see whether, as predicted, better teams had lower error rates. It seemed that that kind of thing had been shown previously in the aviation context, particularly using simulators to, you know, safely generate errors and see and see how well um, how well good teamwork could guard against errors and accidents. Right? So this was simply a sort of a reapplication of that very basic idea in the healthcare delivery setting. Okay, so I'm eager to participate. I do my part. They do their part. Um, six months of error collection uh, data. And lo and behold, I run the correlations between the team attributes and the error rates. And the first thing I noticed to my surprise and delight is that there is a statistically significant correlation uh, between these two data sets, you know, and that's not something you can necessarily take for granted. Um, and then the second thing I noticed to my horror was that the direction of correlation was in the opposite of what we expected and hoped. In other words, the data seemed to be saying that better teams, better leaders, higher quality relationships had higher error rates, not lower. Now, I, I just didn't think that made any sense. You know, and I, I, at first I struggled to figure out what, what did I do wrong? Did I miss code? You know, did I run the numbers wrong? No, 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 I didn't, none, none of that. And, and so in, finally it occurred to me, you know, within a few hours, wait a minute, maybe the better teams, because I did trust the survey instrument, you know, maybe the better teams don't make more mistakes. Maybe they're more able and willing to talk about those mistakes that do happen. And the more I thought about it, the more that was a likely explanation. And in part because healthcare delivery is very, complex and messy and fast paced. And a lot of things happen 
that don't rise to the level of awareness. In other words, when big bad things happen, you know, if a patient is really harmed, you can't hide that. Um, but a lot of little mistakes happen along the way, or mistakes happen that fortunately, whether luck or divine intervention, don't lead to harm, even though they could have. Right? Those kinds of things um, are easily hidden. And not because caregivers are bad people, but because they're busy, they're fast, and they know they'll get yelled at, right? So, so, but the surprising thing isn't that people might be hiding their own mistakes. The surprising thing was the variance, right? The surprising thing was that in the same two hospitals, some teams had very high, apparently, at least I was beginning to think this was true, high willingness to talk about things that are inherently threatening and others didn't. So that, that variant surprised me. And I started talking about it then as interpersonal climate. By the way, I should have stuck with that term, but we'll come back to that. So I started talking about this difference, um, but it wasn't because this was not a discovery by design, but by accident, it was still a tough sell. You know, I still, I still had to, um, I still had more work to do in my future to show that this interpersonal climate difference really existed and really um, related to people's willingness to speak up about errors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, from a, a business standpoint, why is uh, psychological safety important? For example, we have heard you talk about the cost of speaking up. Can you share some real-world uh, examples that you have witnessed firsthand that support this claim? I, I wish this weren't true, but what, what comes to mind first when I hear that question is the psychological safety failures that lead to performance failures rather than the other way around. So I'll start there. And there's two big kinds of failures that can be directly traced to a lack of psychological safety. And one kind are uh, the kind we've been talking about already, which are sort of human safety failures. Um, and that's not just in healthcare, you know, that can be um, in, in, in factories or even in places like airlines or, or you know, where, where, where human lives are at risk every day. Um, and when people are unwilling uh, to speak up about the, the things they see and worry about or when they need help, then their organizations are more at risk for producing unnecessary failures uh, in, in the safety domain. The other are business failures, you know, either um, scandals or performance uh, problems that also could have been averted had people felt comfortable speaking up. Some of the um, classic examples or increasingly classic examples can be found in um, the Volkswagen dieselgate scandal, you know, where engineers, rather than speaking up to say, nope, this technology is not yet at the level where it can pass regulatory standards, um, they felt absolutely unable to do and say that. So instead, they develop uh, software to cheat the regulators. And it's a whole other story, but if you can imagine yourself finding that to be the preferred of the two bad options, you know 
you can then imagine the pain of of work environments where people just don't believe honesty is allowed. And and I think it's very painful indeed. It's painful for them, and then it's painful for customers, um, environment, and more. Um, and and so so um, there are many business shortcomings in performance and safety and 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 scandal that can be traced back to the inability of people uh, to speak up. On the flip side, we can point to a handful of great teams or a handful of uh, unusual companies where people have where they've worked hard to make a climate where people know their voice is welcome. You know, even if what I'm about to say is going to be not easy or not popular, I know I know that I'm expected uh, to say it. Um, and in those organizations, a kind of one of the classic ones in my mind is Pixar, um, which has done the remarkable feat of producing something like 18 hit movies, you know, commercial and critical successes in a row, right? In the industry they play in, that's just unheard of, right? You have some hits and then you have some some clunkers and then, you know, and it's, but they, they manage to, in a way, what they do, what they're able to do is find the faults before the rest of us get to see them, which is, you know, what those healthcare groups weren't doing, right? You want, you want, you want the, you want inside the organization to be very critical and aware and open so that outside, um, you know, things will finally look, look and be good at the same time. Mm -hmm. And why do you uh, people fail to use their voice? Are there specific barriers managers should be aware of? Yes, you know it's 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 human nature, and there's a lot of socialization to reinforce this aspect of human nature to want to look good in front of others, and and particularly in a hierarchy, it's exacerbated. This tendency is exacerbated in a hierarchy. And then we have this, really, I would say nowadays, erroneous belief that I will look good by being right all the time, or I will look good by um, not saying something that might upset, you know, the boss, um, or by not offering a, a crazy idea, but only a perfect idea, right? So, and and when we, I think you can readily appreciate that that belief, even if it's just below the surface, um, is quite at odds with the world in which we now live. The world in which we now live is hopelessly complex, uncertain, interdependent. You know, each one of us is in, it must depend on many others to, to get hard things done, complex things done. Um, and so the only way to produce excellent interdependent work is by being very open along the way. Uh, and, and yet that need is at odds with some of our wiring and much of our socialization. And of course, our educational systems reinforce that, you know, you, you get the good grade, you, you, you're the smart student who's always right and so forth. And so people become very fragile, right? They're not, they're not able to, learn as well because they're so um, worried about performing or proving. Larry Wilson used to say, are you working to prove yourself or to express yourself? And it's, I think all too often, especially at work, people are working to prove themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
big problem, I think. Uh, thinking about teaming, as you are an expert in this uh, area too, and maybe first, uh, I first read teaming. How does psychological safety come to life here? And how do you make sure teaming is successful? I, um, I, as I said earlier, I was studying, I started studying teams because I thought that's where the meaningful learning happens. But in many organizations that I went into and in, in, in hospitals, but also in corporations, I had a hard time pinning down the team because it, it turns out people are on multiple teams at once and, and teams are fluid. You know, today the membership is, is this, but tomorrow it's something else. People leave, people come in, right? So I began to think this idea of teams as a noun was far-fetched, right? We don't, we don't in today's um, work environments have as many, we have some, but we don't have as many stable teams that have clear bounded membership, you know, clear shared goals and all of that good structure that helps teams be teams. What we have instead is enormous need for coordination, collaboration, but oftentimes with new people in an ongoing fluid way. And so I thought we have to stop just in, in my field, you know, just talking about teams and start talking about teaming. Like, what does it take to help to help people coordinate and collaborate effectively with people you don't necessarily know very well or haven't worked as with as as well before? And I think you quite quickly get to the realization that psychological safety matters here because if 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 you know the three of us have never met before, um, and here we are teaming around the production of a program, and in order to do that well, all three of us, I would argue, have to feel comfortable taking some risks. Fortunately, you can edit them out if they're terrible, right? But you know, but in real life, it's the same thing. We don't. We often don't think, oh yeah, we can edit it out. We can't. I mean, we can. We can, but we, you know. So so people are often far too interpersonally risk averse compared to what's needed for for excellence and for innovation. Um, so Amy, many of our listeners are executives and managers in the business world. How do you build psychological safety in the workplace? I believe I've heard you speak about reframing it as a learning problem and also reframe, reframing failures. Can you expand on that? Sure. So framing and framing and reframing are exactly where I'd start. And I, I think that's very appropriate because you're you're interested in the behavioral sciences and you know nudges and and all of that is um, starts with the recognition of our natural cognitive tendencies right and you know we have we have habits and we have biases and we have um, we have how we see the world and very few people have the conscious awareness of the fact that they are seeing reality through a frame you know, through a cognitive structure that shapes what they pay attention to and what they don't. Um, and the result of that lack of awareness is that we have the experience of seeing reality, right? I think I see reality and I expect you to see it too. And then when you suddenly see it differently, I think, what the heck is wrong with you, right? I, I, and I, you know, it's not a happy surprise. 
So I, I talk about reframing as a leadership task, uh, actually at the, at the very top of an organization and, and, and down quite some way. Reframing means helping people have and appreciate a shared frame of what the U.S. Army War College a number of years ago called a VUCA world, a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. And if we start our meetings and start our days fully appreciating and possibly even embracing that VUCA reality, um, we're going to show up in a very different way, right? Instead of showing up thinking, well, gee, I, I, I hope I don't make a mistake today. I hope I don't look bad. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to ask a question. Instead of that, we would show up going, wow, what can I learn today? So the degree to which uh, executives are helping people keep getting in touch with the actual complex, challenging, uncertain nature of reality um, is the degree to which people are hearing a subtle invitation, which is your voice matters. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and then you, you brought up nudges, and that actually leads to my next question, which is as behavioral scientists, we believe strongly in developing interventions to support any training or information programs aimed at driving a specific outcome. Are there some tangible interventions or nudges that can be integrated within the day-to-day -day context to support the behaviors that lead to psychological safety? You know, I think the best day-to-day um, -day nudge, the best day-to-day -day, um, structure you can impose is, is the art of asking good questions. So if you can train people and then have little, you know, whether it's sticky notes or whatever you want, things around to remind us to do it, um, there's no more powerful tool than the good question. And so let me pause and define a good question because a good question isn't, you're asking good questions. That's there. You're, you're illustrating a good question, but what, why? Because a good question um, helps us focus on something that matters. Right? so it's not just, Hey, how you doing? Um, and it's also not yes, no, or binary. So it focuses us on something that matters and it, by its wording, gives people room to respond. It, it creates that kind of space. Um, it expresses an interest in hearing what you have to say. So an example of a good question, in addition to the ones you've been asking, might be, um, what do others think about that? Um, what might we be missing? Who's got a different perspective? Right? And And, the more you know, you could you could um, tape record or record. We don't tape record anymore. You could record conversations and find that you know what the percentage of sort of genuine questions versus just statements and expressions of what I think. And in less learning oriented and less psychologically safe environments, you will have a lower percentage. Of good questions. And that seems to me something that any one of us can learn to do more of. And of course, then it really matters. You know, once I've asked a good question, I better stop and listen to the response or it, it, it won't work. So to me, that's the, the biggest nudge opportunity is the, the, the questioning. And then, of course, the careful listening. Yeah, I love that. Great. Thank you. 
Um, and then, so the researcher in me, you know, has this next question, which is how can an organization measure their level of psychological safety? Like, how do they know they have a problem or if their advances in this area lead to progress? You know, the, the, the simple answer is employee surveys. And I'd say a growing number of companies have um, a variable or two that, that capture psychological safety. Right? And, um, and, and by the way, show relationships also with diversity and inclusion and, and so forth. But let's say you don't want to wait for your annual survey or, or let's say you don't control the survey and you still want to know. Um, there is a growing number of, you know, talk about nudge, little apps out there that that um, allow people to do kind of pulse-like surveys, you know, with their team and anonymous and just, and you're trying to get at things like um, whether people um, feel okay sharing half-baked ideas or asking for help or, or um you know, admitting weaknesses or mistakes, and you're kind of trying to you're trying to um, take the temperature, if you will. If you don't have that access, I would say stop and ask yourself um, how often you're hearing bad news. Questions of the type like, "I'm not sure what to do here. Can you help?" Um, um, you know, crazy ideas and, and versus how often are you hearing people reporting how well things went? Um, and in a VUCA world, they should be at the very least in balance and probably, you know, the portion of let's just simplify and call it bad news should probably be higher than the portion of good news, you know, depending on the, the kinds of work you do, how much uncertainty, how much challenge, how much complexity. So you can, if you can honestly ask yourself what that, what the ratio is, um, more often than not, you may realize you're not hearing enough of the problems, of the concerns, of the questions, of the wacky ideas. So you're, this is hard because you're trying, you're asking yourself about the dog that didn't bark, and and trying to get curious about the dog that didn't bark in the middle of the night in the famous Sherlock Holmes story. So um, most of us aren't aren't aware enough to be noticing what didn't happen. But I, I think we can be and, and maybe must be. Uh, to build on the last Jenny question, um, what would be your key advice for a leader or a manager uh, who would like to reinforce psychological safety in his organization? First, I would say um, it's really important for that manager to, to recognize that psychological safety um, does not mean everybody's going to be comfortable. In fact, it's quite the opposite, right? It means getting comfortable with discomfort. So then you have to say, well, this, this, this starts with me. I need to be comfortable being vulnerable, right? If, if, you're, if you're a manager and you want to get through this whole thing unscathed and everybody else is now supposed to lower the threshold and feel safe taking interpersonal risks, but you still hope to look good and look right all the time, you're going to get stuck uh, pretty quickly. So I think it's it's super important to recognize that you have to go first. Right? You have to be vulnerable. You have to you have to say things routinely like, 
oh, I never thought about it that way. Or someone asks you a question, you don't know the answer. Guess what? You say, I don't know. And many people feel, oh, that will make me look bad. It's the opposite. It makes you look good. It makes you look strong enough and self-confident enough to say, I don't know. Because the truth is in today's world with expertise that's deep and narrow, all of us have things we know and things we don't know. And only by being kind of transparent and honest about, you know, what we don't know, um, do we really earn the right to be trusted about the things we do know? So advice number one is go first, you know, model the behavior, model vulnerability, model curiosity, and above all, model empathy. You know, because people, if, if you do this right, people are going to start being more honest, uh, being more open. And that's going to mean sometimes they're taking risks and they're telling you about a project that's not going well. Your first reaction ought to be, you know, appreciation for that honesty. Um, and, and, and immediately after, a little bit of empathy for what they're up against. And, and then a kind of uh, willingness to, to redirect the conversation to the future. Like how, you know, the question, the important question is always, where do we go from here? Not how the heck did that happen? That's an important question. I believe in after interviews, but the first question ought to be, how can I help? What's next? Ooh, what, what ideas do you have, right? What are we gonna do uh, to turn this ship around? Thanks a lot. I think it will be uh, very helpful for a lot of our listeners. Amy, we would uh, love to get your perspective on the impact of current events. And we have a lot right now and some very important. How have you uh, have the recent changes in the business world due to the COVID-19, like increased uncertainty or remote working, change how we should address this topic? Yes, uh, the, the, the pandemic and all of the associated challenges, uncertainty, and even hardship um, that have come with it do require a couple of adjustments in how we think about this topic. And I think one is we have to be that much more proactive and explicit because especially for remote working, it's harder to pick up the subtle cues that someone might not feel safe or, or might not be coming forward with a truly crucial question or, or piece of information. And because you are less likely to be able to intuit that, you must be more proactive in seeking it out. Like you have to use more structured processes like rounds, you know, let's go around the, let's go around the Zoom room and, and, and um, each person will explicitly share their worry or their idea or whatever, you know? So in other words, no one has the option of just opting out because you have to be more, more structured, more proactive um, in ensuring that voices are heard. The other big issue in this domain is that uh, many people might be struggling with um, constraints and challenges that you're unaware of that in, in before people, once people came to work, you know, they might have things on their mind, but we're all here at work and we're kind of, you can, you can uh, sort of act as if and roll up your sleeves and get to work. But when people are working from home and at a distance and alone, 
you um, you have to be just much more aware that they might really be struggling. Um, and so there has to be, I think, even greater uh, compassion and opportunity to um, engage them and offer whatever support and help you need to offer to make their lives manageable. Now, um, the, the, the silver lining in all of this challenge is this, um, fear that is shared is discussable and fear that is discussable is lessened. Right? So whereas a lack of psychological safety traditionally at work meant it was a very lonely state, right? It meant I'm here, I care about my colleagues, I care about the customers, but I don't feel my voice is welcome. Right? That's a, it's a, a lonely and alone thing. Today, you know, fear of the virus or fear of the economic fallout of the virus are both highly discussable issues. There's no shame, there's no embarrassment in feeling afraid of either one of those two things. So what I am seeing is that it, it leads to more open, shared conversations, um, which then leads to a feeling of being a part of this conversation together, which makes it more bearable. Mm -hmm. And uh, as your uh, advice to leaders shifted at all because of this, what has been your main message to them, to the leaders during this uh, unprecedented time? My main message has been in times of extreme upheaval or crisis, it is even more natural to want to hold back, you know, to like, let's wait and see, because uh, I don't know enough, so I can't speak out um, to, so you want, you want to wait and see, you want to maybe downplay bad news so that you look good and people don't feel bad. Um, and um you 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 want to kind of um i don't know cover your you you're worried you're even more worried about how how you come across whereas in fact the opposite is what's needed you need to be transparent about what what you know what you don't know and you need to act fast rather than wait and see the only way to learn what's going to work is is through experimenting so It's, it does, it's not intuitive, but you need to just try things and, and see what happens. And then you need to be open and honest about what works and what doesn't. So it's only, it's, what I'm trying to say is your instincts are going to get you in trouble and they all need to be overridden. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, Amy, we would like now to uh, know more about your future. Uh, can you share with us any uh, exciting new topics or projects that we should be on the look for, the lookout for, or any new books uh, in the works? And you mentioned uh, intrapersonal factor before. Yes, I've been thinking. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm getting very serious at the moment about uh, in writing a book on failure. I think it remains. You know, it's a popular topic, but it remains misunderstood, and and particularly in the in the practitioner space. I think people fail to adequately distinguish among types of failure, and therefore we lack a, um, a kind of a, a good playbook um, and, and even great advice about how to really learn from failure, how to have good failure, not bad failure, and, and the like. So it's a, it's a continuation of these themes we've been talking about, um, but be, it'll be a particular deep dive. 
Yeah, well, we're certainly looking forward to it. Um, and I know uh, our time is is now over, but uh, before we get off, uh, is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with, perhaps where they can find out more about you and your work? Sure. Well, I, I think the books, um, the books teaming and the fearless organization are, are certainly uh, very good places to start. You can always go to HBS uh, website and find my faculty page, Amy Edmondson, and um, see a list of other articles, short and long, um, that might be of interest. So thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.